Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Chris West with When Humanists Attack, a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and also a podcast. Today we're going to be sitting around and talking, Vincent Downing, Chris West West, the pontificator, with Daniel Mann. We're going to be talking with Daniel about his ideas of the world, his cosmology, his beliefs, and why he believes those things. So I'd like to start off by uh, welcoming Daniel. Daniel, welcome to When Humanists Attack. Well, thanks. It's nice to be here. Maybe I shouldn't speak too prematurely, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, we're very pleased that you were willing to take the time to sit down and chat with us. I'd like to know a little bit about your your background, uh, your history. Uh, what's your, where were you born? What kind of family uh, did you grow up in? And how did you develop as a person towards your, your uh, current status? I was the oldest of three sons. I, I grew up in a Jewish family and my family was atheistic or agnostic. I was the one who had a, a much stronger Jewish identification than the other two. <clears throat> And maybe that was because of the anti-Semitism that I experienced. And it was so, it affected me so deeply that I dreaded going to school. And uh, it, it became physical at times too. And, and I wasn't one who was comfortable about just holding it in. And it just produced such a hatred in me, hatred so intense that I actually thought that they had a different odor. And, uh, yeah, I grew up in an area that was just white and Jewish. That was it. And where, where about was this? What, what part of the country are you from? Uh, this was Clifton, New Jersey. When anti-Semitism was directed towards me, people who I thought were my friends kind of vanished. And, and so I was left with the opinion that they were all anti-Semitic. And so it became so painfully obvious or conscious on my part that when I was with Jewish people, I would feel one way. When I was with white people, I would feel another way. And finally, this led me to uh, become a Zionist and to move to Israel. And I hated everything Christian because I looked at, you know, this is the way the Jews conceptualize the world. They look at people as either Jew or, or non-Jew. And so since they had Christmas trees and they would talk about Christian type of stuff. They were Christian in my mind. And so I hated them. And I, I really felt that the only place that a Jew could live comfortably was in their own homeland in Israel. So I moved there when I was about 23 years old. And, uh, and I tried out a number of kibbutzim. Hmm. And these are, uh, these, these are collectives. And they were very popular in Israel at the time. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but I got involved in kibbutzim that were part of the ultra Marxist movements. And, but I wasn't really very conscious of what was going on <laughs> because I was more into myself and that, that inner environment than I was in finding the perfect environment. In fact, for me, the perfect environment was where everybody would love me because I felt very unloved growing up. So yeah. unloved that I felt that I had to be somebody else to be worthy of someone else's love. 
you said that you started getting into Zionism before you went to Israel. Can you tell me a little about that journey? For me, Zionism was simply a matter of Jewish survival. It was about Jews having their own homeland where people wouldn't try to kill us off. And I read a lot of Jewish history at the time because that's what I identified with. I grew up feeling hated by the world. And it was something was strange. It wasn't that I probably grew up in an area that was maybe 10% Jewish. And so most of my friends were Jewish. But it's not like we sat around and we talked about anti-Semitism. It was very, very, mm. not, yeah, my identity and, and talking about anti-Semitism was a very private thing. I never even talked to my parents about it. Mm. Maybe it was because it was a, an area of a shame in my life and a shame to other people also that we ignored that. We ignored that conversation. And so going to Israel for me represented a matter of being part of my own family, mm. where I would be accepted, where I would feel loved and feel like I belonged. But of course, it doesn't work out that way. And it didn't work out for me that way because people are people wherever you go. And uh, it was interesting. It was interesting to be part of kibbutz life. And I, I experienced six different kibbutzim looking for the ideal one, which, of course, you never find. And in fact, I was, uh, uh, my wife at the time told me that I was a problem wherever I went. And it was, this is, I was oblivious to that. I was oblivious to the fact that I was rubbing people the wrong way. In fact, we went to visit uh, kibbutz where we spent a year back in, I think it was 92, with my daughter. And she was about 20 at the time. And we visited this kibbutz and every, I didn't know who these people were, but people knew who I was and they even know, knew who my daughter was. And so my relative who drove us there went to the woman who was the head of the volunteers and asked them, what type of person was Daniel? And she said, he was only a problem, just a problem. I had no aware. I, I knew I had problems with people, but I couldn't understand why. Can you tell me a little about where your parents fall in that, that spectrum? Yeah. Um, my parents, uh, they, they, they were both born in the States, but their parents came from Poland. And so they left there very happily and uh, they, they experienced a lot of anti-Semitism there also. You know, whether they did anything to bring it on themselves. And sometimes I, I get critical of my messianic brethren in that, in that regards. But I, I don't know. But they didn't have much good to say about it. Your parents would have been born in America. And that would have meant that your grandparents were part of the Ellis Island crowd. Yeah, that... they, they were. Okay. They, they came to the States... Uh, I, I guess one before the World War One, and and a couple of them after World War One, and and so my parents were born like in the twenties. Hmm. I was born hmm. in forty-seven, and uh, yeah, it, it did. But you know, it, it impacts us in a very, very different way. As as I said, I grew up with a very strong Jewish identity. Yeah. I was the one who experienced more anti-Semitism than my brothers. I was the oldest one. 
And by the time they went through the same school system, they didn't experience the anti-Semitism that I had experienced. And so it was different mm. for them. Yeah. And we always had a difference. I mean, we're, I think we're close as brothers. We still are, even though they don't share my faith. But yet, yet we have a very different outlook on life, different reactions to things. You know, as if we didn't grow up in the same household. And I think so, that all of us with with siblings have that where, and I think that's something that psychology has borne out. Is you're going to four people in a room all experiencing the same stimulus and walking away with different experiences, and that really is molded by who we are as people, and that's um, not really a choice from my experience. It's really what we're, we're born with. Um, we and how that's nurtured one way or the other is is how well we develop coping mechanisms to deal with our personalities and how they fit with the rest of the world. So you started out in a uh, a cultural Jewish environment without a lot of religion around the Judaism, and then you discovered, for self defense reasons, it seems that you were interested in finding out more about Zionism. What is your first memory of your interactions with the Bible? Well, it was in Israel because it was in Israel that I began to search out God. And, and my first, my, my first ex, uh, experience with the Bible, somebody gave me a Bible. It was an Old Testament and they gave me the Bible. And somehow I, I, uh, I stumbled upon the book of Joshua. And I love the book of Joshua. Any idea why I love the book of Joshua? Because in the book of Joshua, us Jews were kicking butt. <laughs> and I liked it. It made me feel good. But after you're finished with the book of Joshua, you go on to the book of Judges. Yeah. And in the book of Judges, it's the Israelites who are getting kicked all over the place. And I said, I can't take this any longer. And I put that down the Bible. And so my orientation to the Bible was in a very human way. I won't use the word humanistic, but in a very, very human way. I, I, wanted, I was looking for something to make me feel good about myself because I never did. It was in Israel that I began to search for God. And so whenever I heard of somebody who had a religious faith, what I would do was pursue them and ask, how do you know this stuff is true? What has it done for your life? And nobody really could give me any satisfactory answers. So I visited a number of Orthodox communities where I could ask them my questions. And I still couldn't get any satisfactory answers. Anything I identified with them. I appreciated what they were doing. But it didn't seem to really be able to penetrate to the place of my need, to the place of my satisfaction, where I could really feel... I'm on the right track. I moved into this commune, which was a big mistake. But they told me, well, the reason that you're going through this stuff is because you're in rebellion against God. And they were, they were very radical. And they believed that everybody had to be living in a commune where they didn't have control over their own life, their own money. And this is what God wanted. And I thought, my gosh, maybe they're right. I, I, I can't. I'm dysfunctional you know, the way I am, I'll give it a try. Well, it didn't work out. It didn't work out at all. But there were times and I had this little room in the basement that I would try to pray. And I was so hurting within me, I couldn't even pray. I tried to read the Bible. 
but I couldn't do that. And, and if I could, I could only understand. I was so distraught. I can only understand the simplest statements. And so one night, sometimes I would just go to sleep and I can only sleep like five minutes at a time, but I would go to sleep with my Bible just resting on my stomach. And one such night I was reading the Bible and I just read a simple phrase and it just said, and God heard him. And an explosion went off in my mind. It was, an, it was just a moment of light. I saw light. It just lasted for a moment. But afterwards, the depression was gone. The fear was gone. The panic attacks were gone. It was all gone. And I felt such a joy. I knew that God loved me. Now, <laughs> the next day was back again. But it left me with something. It left me with the conviction that even though I'm going through this garbage, that God hears me and that he's there for me. And so I married a French woman in the process and she wanted to leave Israel. I still wanted to stay Israel in Israel. And so she didn't want to go back to France. She was kind of a rebel and I was sort of a rebel. And, and we would decided that we would come back to the States and we would live in harmony with nature because we believed that if you live in harmony with nature, you will experience the peace of nature. And that's what we were both looking for, for peace. But we weren't getting much peace out of our marriage. Well, there was no peace within me. Yeah. And so there was not, mm. there was not much peace in my wife either. And so when two people get together with that, carrying all the baggage that we did, it, it was hard for us to really, I guess, get along. We were both problem people. We both rejected the... Um, the bourgeoisie, you know, the materialistic lifestyle, and we wanted to live in harmony with nature. And my parents very graciously took us in. But after a week or two, my mother pulled me over for a private conversation and said, you got to get rid of this woman. I can't take her anymore. <laughs> so I, I decided I'd get in the car and I would just look for some place to rent, just some little shack on a, on a farm. And we found that down in Virginia. And we were given a piece of land and I drove a cab to make money. And, and so uh, we were hoping, though, to have our own farm. And it was at that time that we began to look into the, uh, the, the, uh, the communes and we visited several. But for some reason, I don't remember what happened at the time. There was really no connection. So we decided we'd try to find a cheap piece of land, cheap farm somewhere. And we did way up in the hills, way up in the hills of Appalachia. And it was rough. It was at the end of a dead end road. But we liked the fact that we were living it on a on a gravel road at the end of a dead end. And we were all by ourselves there, nobody else in sight. And we were going to live by our own wits and our own elbow grease. And that, that appealed to both of us. But uh, we didn't anticipate the problems. I was reading your blog the other day, and I've been reading uh, some of your writings to, to try to get an understanding of where you're coming from, your point of view. And you mentioned in a recent blog post about um, the, the, the moment where you had a complete change of, of idea about how the world is put together. You, you had a, a, an aha moment, as, as many of us would say. Could you, could you bring us through that moment? Sure, yeah. My wife 
and child weren't home at the time. I had a horrible chainsaw injury. I was clumsy. The chainsaw bucked back on me. It was before there were any chainsaw guards and it hit me in the head while I was going. And I lifted my hands up to see if I still had a skull. And when I lifted my hands up, I saw that my wrist had been half cut off and the blood was squirting out like crazy. And I was laying in a pool of blood thinking that my next breath is going to be my last because I was losing so much blood. And suddenly I realized that I wasn't alone. I knew that there was somebody else there with the same degree of certainty that I know that you're here right now, (laughs) even over Zoom. Uh, And I knew it was God. I didn't know who he was. I had been searching for God, but all my attempts to find him were were totally aborted. And one reason they were is that I was expecting God to fit into my identity, my agenda, to give me what I needed, and I didn't find anything. But during this encounter with God, while I was laying in this pool of blood, I was filled with such a joy and an ecstasy, knowing that I was beloved by God and nothing else made any difference at all. Even if I died, I knew that this God was going to be there for me, that he loved me, and that he was going to take care of me. And that's all that mattered. And and I vowed to God during that time, God, I would gladly give you both arms and both legs just to have you. And I really meant it. When this happened, I was very close to the house. I tucked my hand in the side. I ran in. We had a wall phone. No such thing as 911 back then. I only knew the number of one neighbor. And so with my hand tucked in to try to cut off the bleeding, I, I called their number, but the phone rang 16, 18 times. And I thought, if they don't pick up, yeah, that's I'm the done end. for, right? because I'm going to pass out any moment. And so uh, finally, after maybe 18 rings, and I said the Shema, you know, the Shema, you know, when Jews say before they're going to die, uh, they, uh, they answered the phone. But I found out later that uh, they had gotten in the car and the son was getting in. He was about probably 14, 15 at the time. And they said, don't get the phone. We got places, we got things to do in town. And he said, Dad, just say it's somebody who's hurt who needs our help. And he ran back (laughs) and he got the phone. And so when they came, when they finally arrived, they saw something that was just horrific because because of the blood squirting. The walls were painted with blood. And I was laying down. The woman, fortunately, was a nurse. And she said she had never met anybody closer to death because I had turned gray. I had lost so much blood. And so she wrapped up my hand, uh, my my uh, my wrist, and she called uh, the amp for the ambulance. But it took about an hour before they can get there because they were riding around here and there. And and finally, when they got there, they tried to stick an IV in me, but all my veins had collapsed, and they couldn't get anything in. So they just took out the paperwork, and they were doing the paperwork. So my neighbors started screaming at him. And say, you better get him to the hospital immediately or you're not going to have anybody. Now, I was passed out at this time. You're not going to have anybody to fill out this paperwork on. And so they were shamed. And so they 
they must have from up from the story I heard they they loaded me up and they took me to the hospital and fortunately there was a good doctor there at the time who sewed me up but I was so naive that the next morning the soul the sur surgeon came in after I woke up and I was out you know until the next morning and he says you're gonna have to start moving your hand because if you don't move your hand it's gonna get locked up and I kind of I kind of sloughed him off because I felt that this guy, whoever he is, I knew that he is all powerful. I didn't even have to bother with my hand. But as you can see, you know, I, uh, I could never, I can never, I can't even make a fist anymore because it did lock up on me. I didn't do anything with it. I was in a hospital for about four days. And during that time, I thought about my vow and the people who rescued me, brought me some books to read and they were Christian. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had this one fear. And the one fear that I had was this was going to lead me to Jesus. And that was the one place I didn't want to go. But I had made a vow and I wanted the truth more than anything else. I had to know who this God is who saved me. And that was that was the overall, that was that was the overriding concern, even greater than my fear. And so these neighbors brought me some books to read and, and they were Christian. And I thought, oh my gosh, this sounds like Jesus who I met. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I thought I have to make the next step. And that's after I got home. And, and so I, I couldn't go to a church. Now that would have been too traumatic for me. In fact, I imagined that if I went into a church, I would become so nauseated, I would vomit. That's how intense my hatred was. And so, but I heard of a, I heard of a, 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 a prayer meeting that was meeting outside of the church. And I thought, well, maybe I can handle this. So I went there and, and uh, I came, I was all bang, my head was bandaged, my arm was bandaged. And, and I was only the second person there and people turned to me. They, nobody saw me before, people were coming in. People looked at them, they looked at me to kind of get in some acknowledgement. Like, do any of you know who this guy is? And, and so finally one woman turned to me and she says, uh, have you ever been here before? And I said, nope. And she turned back to me and she said, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and savior? I said, look lady, I, I didn't come here to talk about myself. When you pray, I'll pray. You want to get up and sing? I'll sing, whatever you do, I'll do, you know, but I don't, you know, just don't pay no attention to me. And so they just had to proceed. And it was so strange to me. I'd never been in anything like this in my life. You know, people would hold hands and pray. And, and I was just, you know, with my eyes open, I'd look around and everybody and thought, this is strange. This is like going to a witch's Sabbath or something. That's how strange it felt like. And, and people would kind of, they would kind of look up and squint their eyes at me and they see me looking at them and they quickly put their head down. Your entire journey through life was trying to find a sense of wholeness that you had been denied as a kid and, and being beat up and trying to find that connection with a community. What rings to me as, as a, a question is whether or not the imprint that you would have made on the, the nameless, formless experience that had that that warmth that overwhelming feeling might have been pointed instead of towards jesus towards a different deity my search 
wasn't resolved after a visit to this group or a visit to the home of the people who invited me. Uh, it took many, many months because I needed to know, because I had the same type of doubts. I, I tend to be the biggest skeptic in the world. I wanted the truth. Now, there were times when it just felt so right to believe that Jesus had died for my sins and God loved me. But then I would think, how can I believe this stuff? It doesn't make any sense to me that God is supposed to be all powerful. And, and now Jesus has to die in order for God to love me. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I struggled for many, many months. And during this time, I put out what we call a fleece. You might not be familiar with that. But it's, it's like, God, you're going to have to show me. If I'm going in the right direction, I really, really want to know the truth. I really want to find you. You're going to have to confirm it for me. And so I would have to hitchhike from way out in the country, the end of a dead end road, all the way to the hospital to see my surgeon. Because the only vehicle we had was a stick truck. My, my wife couldn't drive it. Your hand. And I couldn't. <laughs> right. And so I would have to hitchhike. I said, one way you can confirm it to me is, is bring me a number of fantastic rides to get to the hospital. <laughs> and that's what happened. When I got out in the street, right out, outside my dead end road, somebody stopped. He didn't open the door. He rolled down the window. You know, he had seen me put out, putting out my thumb. And he says, I don't know why I'm stopping for you. I have never stopped for hitchhikers. I don't know what I'm doing. I just started laughing. <laughs> and, and finally, he was just staring at me. And I looked at him. And he just kicked open the door. and said, you might as well get in. <laughs> and so the next ride I got was equally incredible. Maybe not equally. But I, I put on my thumb. Somebody drove a stopped. And there were a bunch of guys in the car got in. And we're racing along the highway to the hospital. And he says, I'll drive you right there. I said, oh, cool. And, and so as we were driving, he got this blowout. It was a, the car was in terrible shape, but he got a blowout in the front tire. And, and going as fast as he was was really dangerous, but he was able to hold the road. And finally, he said, don't worry about it. I'll drive you there anyway. And with this flat tire, he drove me all the way there. And I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> That sounds certainly kind, and it certainly does sound a bit unusual if we have a, a pessimistic view of the world. It's about a worldview, right? Why are these things happening is what we're, we're both trying to get behind. Your newer worldview uh, that you had just kind of begun to adopt after this accident fit perfectly into that the things that are happening is because the conversation that you had with God and, and, and these are the proofs. I had experienced decades of depression and then followed by the addition of panic attacks. I had dropped out of college three times, you know, trying to find something else. I was going to, I was going to be a concert pianist. I was going to be this and I was going to be that. I tried out Judaism. I put on tefillin and, uh, and on my own said the prescribed prayers, but nothing ever worked. I saw psychotherapists and they left me worse off than I was before. I tried meditation for a while, but I found that doing meditation and focusing on, uh, on myself 
was more depressing than anything else I could imagine. So that never took me anywhere. It seemed that everything that I tried was a dead end. And so this was very different because even though it was so hard for me to believe it, I really felt that Jesus had died for my sins, even though my mind was rebelling against it. And I received, I had joy in knowing that God loved me and that he cared about me and that he rescued me in such a miraculous way and that he gave me these various signs. And so I began to try out church. And fortunately, I went to a church where people really embraced me. I started to feel so confident that I decided I would go back to college again. And I wanted to help people. And it seemed that when I met people in need, I never knew what to tell them. I never knew how to help them. So I decided I was going to go back to college and get a degree in social work, which I did get. I, I did a field placement in the community mental health center. And it was an interesting placement for me because I would get into the sessions with the psychotherapists and, and they would talk about their cases and process this problem and that problem. And it gave me an insight into what they were going through, the problems that they encountered. I was beginning to, to, uh, to trust in Jesus. And there was a girl in one of my social work classes. I wanted to go up to her and I wanted to talk to her, but I didn't have the courage. And so I was graduating and she was graduating at the end of the term. And I prayed to God and I said, God, I, I'm a failure, but I'll tell you what I'll do, God, if this woman is standing outside the door. When I come out of the bathroom, I thought I was safe here. <laughs> when I come out of the bathroom, I will speak to her. I opened the door and there she was. And so I said, you're not going to believe this. I got to talk to you. <laughs> and I told her the story. I said, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And she said, yeah. And I told her about my life and about Jesus. And she says, my gosh, that's, a, that's an interesting story. Well, it was the last time I ever saw her. But things would happen like that. Things would happen to confirm to this skeptic that this was for real. It wasn't just a good feeling. It wasn't just a need that, that, that I needed a God who would love me. But there was really truth to this. Contrary to my hope, after I came to Christ, uh, the panic attacks came on big time. I was so devastated I was in a graduate counseling program and I had to drop out. I, I couldn't even talk. I was in such pain. I couldn't even talk to people. I felt so ashamed of myself, so ashamed of my faith. Whenever I was walking on the street and I saw somebody coming towards me that I know, I, I'd find an alley to duck down so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. I was suffering so that I felt that God didn't like me. Okay, maybe he would take me to be into heaven with him, but just reluctantly. Because my whole life had been a life of rejection. Yeah. And so it was hard to me to really feel that God had accepted me, especially in light of my depression and the panic attacks. I was in church one evening and and once a month they would have a special service where the people would come up to the podium and talk about what God did for them. And when I would hear that, I would be so distraught within me 
And I would think, what has God done to me? I'm struggling. Anybody, anybody has a better life than me. And so I, I didn't want to call attention to myself, but I couldn't stand it any longer. I was going to get up and leave. And I heard a voice. And it's the only time I ever heard a voice like that. <laughs> I'm not in the habit of hearing voices. I heard a voice and all the voice said was just wait a minute. It was a, kind of like a voice within me. It wasn't an external voice. And I thought, okay, I can wait a minute or two. And as I waited, somebody came up behind me and threw their arms around me in a loving embrace. And when I turned around to see who it was, there was nobody there. And I knew immediately that it must have been God proving that he loved me even though my situation was so painful. Now, of course, being the skeptic that I am, the next day, I, I'd pinch myself and I'd ask myself, how can you believe this stuff? How can you believe that God actually came up behind you and hugged you? But I knew what happened. I knew what I experienced. I knew what I was sure of. And even though my doubts kicked in, I had to tell my doubts, get out of here because I know what I experienced. It was kind of as if God was telling me, okay, I brought you this far. Now get up on your feet and start walking. You don't need these miracles anymore. Because after that, I, I never had any. But I needed those miracles to keep me going from one day to the next. When you were telling your story, because you said you had a lot of miraculous experiences, what I was asking myself internally was what is a miracle? The definition of what a miracle is is important here because I don't necessarily maybe have the same definition as you do. So why don't you tell me what under those circumstances it, it is a miracle from your point of view? Uh, something that a naturalistic explanation cannot account for. That's a, a, a really nice definition the things that you've explained to me as being interpreted by you as miracles are just for me, wild coincidences at the worst. I think that a number of people picking you up uh, to go for your, your visit with a surgeon is not what I would bring to the level of miraculous in that same sense. I would say, wow, that's an amazing coincidence. And that coincidence can be explained that God was playing around with what was going on there and, and asked that man to stop for you. And even though he didn't understand it, or it was someone who hit for his own reasons was like, you know, I've never picked up a hitchhiker. This guy doesn't look threatening. You know, I don't know why I'm going to stop. I'm just going to do it. Um, and that seems to me to be a naturalistic event that you're giving supernatural importance to. That seems to me not to be miraculous even though it can be seen as being reckless. I would also say the warm feeling of feeling like you've been hugged is something that I've, I've experienced. It's not necessary to have a supernatural explanation in order to have that type of emotions in that environment. What type of event or miraculous event might convince you 
that God is real or that Jesus is real? Can you give me one such piece of evidence or event? I cannot tell you what I would need as far as evidence to prove to me something that would be sufficient for me to believe that God or Jesus are real and extant because I haven't experienced it yet. Um, a number of things could be events that I would experience, but to then go ahead and take the experience and say that the reason that experience happened was because of this other thing, that there are so many possibilities for me as to what the reasons would be, including I don't know, um, which are more satisfying to me than attributing it to something that I have no evidence for in my own life. I spent 20 odd years searching for the supernatural in a very overt way. I still find the, uh, the evidence that I've been able to interact with lacking. So if I was to see an apparition and that apparition looked like Jesus and I had an interaction with that, my first response would be what you were saying. Am I nuts? What is going on inside my brain that would make that happen? I would not automatically jump to a supernatural cause. And even before I went to a supernatural cause, I would need some kind of confirmation that the supernatural even exists. Even if I were to become convinced that um, there was a God and that Jesus was true, based on what I know of the belief structure around them and, and what I know of the Bible, um, I don't think I'd be willing to worship him. Matt Dillahunty said it best when he said, um, if God is all-knowing, uh, then God would know what I need in order to believe. Um, and if he really wanted me, first of all, if it's a he, but if he really wanted me to have that experience, then um, I think that I'm worthy of a Damascus Road experience, just like Paul. I think you cut the ground out from underneath you with your answer, because what you're saying, in essence, is no matter what miracle or how many miracles that I present to you, your worldview will exclude the possibility that these are miracles. Well, I didn't quite say that. I'm open to the idea. I'm not cutting out the idea that there's a supernatural. I just haven't experienced it or seen it. And I can't tell you what would convince me because what I've seen would convince a lot of people and didn't convince me. What type of miracle can I present to you then that might convince you or even begin to, for you to consider that this might be a miracle? Well, I think very clearly for, for my definition, a miracle would have to uh, suspend the natural laws. Uh, that would be some, one of the minimum things that a miracle would have to do. Um, and within that, I'd have to be able to confirm that it wasn't just some super advanced group of people from another planet, just as Arthur C. Clarke said that any sufficiently advanced culture is indistinguishable from magic or the supernatural to people who aren't aware of the science behind it. So it's possible that I would be able to get behind 
the the event and come to the idea that it was supernatural um but then i i, I come back to you with with another question which is um even if it was possible to convince me that the supernatural exists where is the difference in why your particular take on the supernatural is the one that i should go with it sounds like you're still saying that if jesus appeared to you and said hey chris you know what the heck's the matter with you here i am i'm appearing to you and you're refusing whatever i show you you're refusing to recognize this as a miracle that's what it sounds like you're saying what i'm saying is if god is all-knowing and all-powerful god knows what i need and would give that to me if you really wanted me to know him from a biblical point of view and this is highly offensive yeah are you ready for something oh, highly offensive from please, a biblical point of view please offend me okay from a biblical point of view all the evidence in the world is out there already you know from from uh, arguments of design cosmology first cause all, all sorts of considerations the reason the Bible is consistent about this. The reason that people don't believe is not because the evidence isn't present, but there is something in us, and I recognize that in myself too, that doesn't want to believe because it represents a surrender of our, our autonomy, and it also represents something even more threatening. The Bible also says something that I think is so darn life-controlling. Like, Think of the phenomena in life that we're always trying to prove ourselves and look good. Now, you guys might be an exception because you like to be humble and, and you like to laugh at yourself and admit your foibles. And I really respect that. And I've always respected that about Vincent, too. And I know how difficult that can be really confronting yourself. But I think if we really confront ourselves, we have to confront what is it that motivates us to always justify ourselves to prove ourselves to impress people with our with our uh, accomplishments or our power or money or popularity or whatever form it might take and that's because deep down inside we do not feel okay about ourselves why do we not feel okay about ourselves now this is coming this is a christian interpretation now okay we don't feel okay about ourselves to varying degrees, because we know that there is something not okay about us. And what that, is not okay? Yeah, what is not okay? The fact that we are morally corrupt at our very core. And that not only that, but it goes even deeper than that, I think. That we know that we deserve the judgment of God. We know that we are failures and we're always, we spend our life trying to prove that we are not moral failures, that we are not corrupt, that we are okay and that we are worthy human beings. So I don't disagree with the first part of what you said. I think that people are constantly looking for why they fit in and how they fit in. But I think that's not driven by some kind of moral corruption because I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that the Bible is a moral authority. Um, I personally feel that that's because we're social animals 
And part of our programming is to need to be accepted in order to survive. And I think that that's been borne out through the studies of psychology and animal behavior. Um, and I don't think it's a mystery that we need to fit in. There are plenty of creatures that don't need to fit in. We look at tigers. Tigers are hanging out with their, their best buddies until they're old enough, and then they need their own territory. Uh, tigers wouldn't have that problem. We, however, are uh, one of the most uh, helpless creatures for the first seven, 10, 15 years of our lives. We're completely dependent on, on our, the, the families around us and the environments that are, are shaping us. And in that, we seek to belong. And our fitting in or not fitting in depends on our personality and, and the demands of the society we're in. But I don't ascribe that to some kind of failure or uh, deep within us that's marked on us from birth. I, I just don't believe that. Well, let me throw in some other phenomena that I don't think that your naturalistic scenario can explain. Sure. For instance, the fact that whatever we do, whenever we have a conflict with somebody else, we got to prove that we are right and the other person is wrong. That goes against social cohesion. Another phenomenon. No, I don't agree with that. Um, I think, first of all, I don't think that it, it, it just follows that people need to be right. People like to be right. Um, and I think it is the uh, a, uh, indication of someone being rather well um, rounded as a person that they don't always have to be right. Um, I think that striving to be right is striving to fit into the code of the group that we're in and what's right depends on where we are um, there are some very basic rights uh things that are right like every society believes that uh, murder is wrong uh with or without the bible so i don't necessarily agree with your with your premise i think that we strive to be right because one of the things that we want to do as creatures is to live in truth, right? You're trying to find truth. I'm trying to find truth. We want to be right because we want our worldview to align with what we consider reality to be. Now, your reality is slightly different from mine. And what you're going to strive for to meet that reality is different from mine. But we're both striving to be right within our worldview. And I respect that. And I really respect anybody who's searching for the truth. But I think the history of mankind demonstrates that that's not our first goal. Our first goal is not to think correctly, but to feel good about ourselves. And that helps to explain why we are in denial about so many things, why we have all these various defense mechanisms that it seems that we can't even get beyond. Because this need, and I think it's great to strive to be right and to fit in, but what we find about ourselves is that we are in denial of the wrong that we do. And we try to justify that wrong and, and even blame it on other people. I, I do not disagree at all that there are uh, lots of ways that we find to get around feeling bad about what we do if we do something bad. 
But I think the phenomena still remains. The phenomena is that we are in denial and our denial causes all sorts of interpersonal problems, things that go against the welfare of the community. And so you can't really appeal to evolution to say, well, we evolved this way because we had to, for social reasons. I don't necessarily feel that, that argument follows. I think that uh, evolution perfectly well describes uh, the need for all of these interpersonal, uh, both the good and the bad parts of, of it. Um, I believe that uh, the problems that you have when you're interacting with other people is a part of the mess that biology gives us. And when we're able to navigate that in a way that people come out being whole, feeling well, feeling loved, then we've done it well. And when it doesn't, then we do it badly. If you're coming from an evolutionary, naturalistic point of view, what you have to demonstrate is that somehow this pervasive denial that the human race experiences really has adaptive value. And I don't Absolutely. The denial has adaptive value. Absolutely. Uh, uh, denial is one of the ways that we deal with uh, uh, cognitive dissonance that we can't handle. The repression of uh, horrible memories. Uh, this is a, an adaptive way that that we have to get through the day. Um, it may not be perfect and it may not end up being healthy in the end in every instance, but it's also not unhealthy in every instance either. It's kind of, in my opinion, kind of a, a middle thing. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. It is messy and that mess is not because uh, of some original sin uh, from in my personal point of view and opinion, but just because it wasn't created by anyone. It's just this stuff you know, have having go in the Petri dish. Okay, let me go on to another form of evidence against a naturalistic explanation. Sure. And that is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, masochism, that we harm ourselves. Now, what do we harm ourselves? Now, Christianity has a, a perfectly good explanation for it. We sense, we intuit that we deserve to be punished. That, that's the basic paradigm. Okay. That we have a sense that we know that we are morally deserving of punishment. And, and what the masochist does is he understands that and he punishes himself in order to get some moments of relief from the stress and the guilt. And he's able to enjoy himself for a little bit. But it's something that doesn't really touch the problem because he's got to keep on punishing himself. It demonstrates that there is an awareness within us and a behavior and a resulting behavior that naturalism, I don't think, has an adequate explanation for. So I'll start off with my answer by saying I'm not a psychologist, right? Uh, I, I don't understand or a psychiatrist. I'm not steeped in the deep underlying uh, psychology of a masochist or a sadist. I also don't think that there's anything supernatural about it either. I think that the naturalistic explanation of these, which we, I would have to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get a good understanding of, 
perfectly fits in with other types of uh, psychological problems. The brain is a, a messy place. And sometimes the desire to become a, a member of society, someone imprints that, that hurting themselves is the way to get that. Uh, whether that is uh, biologically set off from as a child or part of the coping strategies that person came up with in the environment that they grew up in, I don't see a supernatural agent necessary for any of that. How do you describe why and how mental illness exists from a, a spiritual or a, a supernatural point of view? I see mental illness as cognitive distortion. Sure, uh, but that's a completely naturalistic way of looking at it or, or, do, or do i have that right is there a way to look at that not naturalistic that oh not yeah yeah now we can take it to a deeper level now because we we, we all agree there and, and that's something that i've enjoyed you know the conversation as I've, I've had with vincent because vincent i know is devoted to the truth especially learning the truth about himself and i think that's very essential very necessary for the human condition I mean, to, to really under, because how are we going to manage ourselves well if we don't understand the, ourselves? And so, but the question is, where does this cognitive distortion come from? Hmm. And so my Christian understanding would be an alienation, not only from God, but an alienation from ourself that results in all sorts of suppression, repression, denial, uh, self-justification, building self-esteem and all that other stuff i don't think that the the evidence bears that out i think that what you're what you're doing is you're taking an observation of uh, of an effect of a of the cognitive dissonance and you're fitting it into your worldview um in because if i were to ask a uh, a hindu why people are crazy there are paths in hinduism where going crazy is the path to wisdom you have these people who spend the, the aesthetics right they spend years and years living on the street what most people would consider to be a rather crazy way to live that is something where we just have to agree to disagree on the, the source there because i don't think that just claiming that it it's because of some kind of break with the root of 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 what i what i should be seeking as wholeness with god just claiming it doesn't doesn't make it true for me um and you may have scripture that that backs that up which is a perfectly sound way for from your point of view to justify things um but it isn't for me because i've done a lot mm -hmm. of reading of your blog and one of the things i, I noticed in your blog is um and i read half of one of your books um which one by the way just uh which one was it uh, the 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 one about apologetics right oh, why believe the bibles yeah why the believe bible right um and you're very well versed in the bible and i'm not uh, i'll just put it out there i do not have a reason to believe that the Bible is anything more than a, a book of stories. I, I don't believe it's the inspired word of God, and I don't believe it's inerrant. So I have a I have a problem using the Bible as a source of, of truth, anything more than what I'd put on Aesop's Fables, because Aesop's Fables is also full of truth, but it is not purporting to be 
you know, the inerrant word of the creator of all of us and the overseer of us and that type of thing. Do I have it right that you believe in the inerrancy of, of the Bible? Yeah. Okay. Can you give me a little bit of understanding about why you feel that way when people can point out obvious uh, inconsistencies in the Bible where it's self the well, it's inconsistent with itself? I would be glad to admit that there are areas in the Bible that I struggle to reconcile. There's some very difficult things there. And so I, I still believe in inerrancy, even though I can't get my mind around everything. Why do I believe in inerrancy? Because it's something that Jesus consistently taught, not using that word, but he consistently mm. talked, that, taught that this is the word of God. And, we, and man must live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, why should I believe in what Jesus said? Well, he provided a lot of proof that he is actually from God. Uh, one set of proofs is through his miracles. Why well, believe it is miracles? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of substantiation for his miracles from the most unlikely sources. Not help only- me out, Help me out, give me a source. Give me a non-biblical source. The Talmud makes many references to the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker, but yet they're not a friend of Jesus because they claim that he worked his miracles by the power of Satan. I did read that in one of your posts. I, mean, I did read that in your book as well. We have no eyewitness accounts of any of this. The, the, the uh, syn synoptic uh, books of the Bible, the, the, the Gospels are anonymously written. Uh, the only uh, author that we have any kind of surety about is Paul. And we have the Pauline letters and we have something like 13 of them, seven of which have been attributed to Paul himself, and the other five, depending on who you ask, but five or six are questionable in authorship. And I was just wanting to know, who, who do you think wrote the synoptic uh, Gospels? Matthew, Luke, John, and... Well, you're, you're right, Chris, that there's no name attached to any of the four Gospels, but some people legitimately make the case that this makes them seem more genuine because the people who wrote these things weren't trying to make a point. They weren't trying to win a following by saying, oh, this came from John or this came from Paul or Luke or, or anybody. They were, these people who wrote these gospels were very self-effacing, it seemed like. And they couldn't claim that this was the gospel of John or, or Mark or, or Matthew, they couldn't do that because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now about the authorship of the gospel of John, why do I believe it's by John? Because that is the universal testimony of the early church. And I think they know better than Bart Ehrman. <laughs> Bart Ehrman may be one of the sources that I, that I go to for this, but he certainly represents the majority of New Testament scholars on the, on the subject. The earliest best Bible uh, version of Luke that we have, which has the the uh, the empty tomb story, um, doesn't include anything past the three women showing up. the The appearance to the apostles after that is apparently, from looking at Bibles from before when that wasn't in there and and later, added in the Middle Ages. Now that could have been inspired as well, but it 
does seem to me that having that kind of evidence from the study of the text as a text, not as the word of God, that that should have some merit and bring some questions to that, that skepticism. You're raising a legitimate question. And that question is, you know, the ending of Mark, it seems to have been a later edition. That's the way it seems like from the evidence that we have on hand right now. But does this mean that there's something illegitimate about the rest of the Gospel of Mark? I don't think you can make that jump. We have no original documents, and we don't know who wrote these. We do know that the early Christians, as, as um, converted by Paul in his missions, um, were upper-class Greek in major city centers. They were literate, and the entire New Testament is written in Greek, right? Um, so we, and, and one of the way you mm. phrased it more than once saying they're written in a way that makes them seem. And that is kind of loose language for me. Uh, when somebody is claiming to have the word of the, the creator of everything, if the veracity is in question, then seeming doesn't seem to be a very high bar. Well, the only thing that we're addressing right now is the authorship. Okay. And so that's that's the area that, that you attacked and, and acknowledged, I acknowledge that many other people attack it. The fact that their names aren't attached to the gospel means that they weren't trying to get over on anybody saying, oh, you can believe this because this was written by an apostle. It's, it seems instead that they were very self-effacing. That's what it seems like. I, I would read the same thing and, and just come away with a different opinion. It seems very much like they're trying to sell the idea that Christ was the Son of God and that he is the person who, if you were to read the rest of this chapter in this book, that these are the words of this Savior and I should listen to them and live my life by them. Even Barton mm -hmm. acknowledges that if you want to know anything about the life of Jesus, he says, go to the four canonical Gospels. That's yep. what he claims. Yep. And he also claims that it's not just his opinion, but it's the opinion of countless historians and New Testament experts. And so what we're saying here is that there are compelling reasons to ascribe the traditional authorship to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are they reluctant to? There's only one reason why they're reluctant to. They prefer to put a later date on John, like around 90 or 100 AD, that would kind of indicate that John probably wasn't alive at that time. Because that is like 90, that would be maybe... 60 years after the cross. And so they don't want to believe that because they would rather believe that it's written not by an eyewitness, which would make it more credible, but believe it, that it was written by somebody else. But yet, I think if you look at the, the textual evidence of the Gospel of John, that there are good reasons to believe that it was written much earlier, like, say, between 60 and 65 A.D. I 
appreciate the reason that you're making the 65 number there because it's really important for all of that to have been written before mm. the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. If it was written in 90, then it can't be a prophecy that came true. And I appreciate that. That's an important proof. So it's kind of important to know whether or not that was one place or the other. I don't think we're ever going to get there. I don't think there's enough evidence from a, uh, a historian's point of view, like Bart Ehrman or another biblical historian, to accurately place that marker one place or the other. To have metrics, we need to agree that mm -hmm. it's a metric that would work here and would work other places. And I'm not a, a New Testament historian myself. I'm leaning on the shoulders of these people. So I, I think that when they were written is important for if some of these prophecies could possibly have been told to be true or not, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, but it's also important who had access to which books, right? Because according to New Testament scholars, the first books may have been available to the later authors and so that the stories are very similar although not exactly the same would make sense um just from a, a literary storytelling point of view like the story of noah right we didn't know that there was a full story of gilgamesh until the 1980s when they discovered the tablets in in what is now ur right in in iraq we found tablets that tell the story of a worldwide flood that was brought on by God for being unhappy. I don't know if you studied the, uh, the uh, laws of Hammurabi, but thou shall not kill is on the laws of Hammurabi. And the Jews were in Babylon in 700. There seems to be quite a lot of evidence pointing to uh, a number of times that the Jews of the time got stories from other cultures and just incorporated into theirs. I've heard um, tell of something called the New Covenant. The laws that were in the Old Testament are partially and in some ways superseded by the New Covenant that Jesus supposedly brought. My question is, there are 613 mm. commandments. I understand that there are things in the Old Testament that nobody is following. And I was just wondering, is there a good mechanism that I can point to in, in when I'm thinking about it that allows you to discern between what is in the Old Covenant that I should not be listening to and what is in the Old Covenant that I should be listening yeah. to? Yeah, not not to say we do have our formulas, but it's not it's not to say that we're going to be able to resolve every teaching in the Old Testament and whether it carries over. Just to give you the major overall rubric, um, the old the old covenant has been fulfilled by Jesus, and uh, we are told in the new covenant that we shouldn't judge anybody based upon these ritualistic requirements like which day do we worship the sabbath what food we eat which holidays we we uh we're supposed to celebrate because these things have all been fulfilled in fact they're called shadows or representations 
of, of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate substance of everything that was written in the Old Testament. Everything was leading up to Jesus, the Savior. A couple of things that we continue to disagree upon is, uh, is something called tithing. You know, in the Old Testament, it was laid out directly. You're supposed to give 10%. In the New Testament, it's been fulfilled and it's been transcended to an understanding that, you know, everything belongs to God. Our, our money has been a blessing by God. Our, the time, our health, everything that we do is a blessing of God. And so, therefore, we have to be open to God's leading in regards to our money, the way we spend our time, how we direct our love, to whom we direct our love. And, and so it's not just, well, we're going to pay off God by paying 10%. And so, but people disagree about that. But about some of the things that you mentioned, Chris, there's some, some things we don't understand. Why not wear these two fabrics together? Why not plant these two fields, this field with different seeds? And we don't know. And even there's an acknowledgement in the New Testament. Don't even debate over the law because there are things that are mysteries. We don't know everything. We have to understand the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. I can't be in a conversation with someone who has your background and not ask about the problem of evil. For our viewers who don't know, the problem of evil is if God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, um, how can he allow child cancer to exist? Um, how can he allow horrible things to happen to innocent people? It's something that eats at me as a person. How, how do you justify the problem of evil? Okay, I'm going to give you the general answer because every specific we can't answer. Like, no. Why did God allow that tsunami why did God allow the COVID? You know, I can't say, but one thing I, I can say is that we need hardships and suffering in our life. I know I need it. I know that God is able to work the, these painful situations. You know, I was talking about my panic attacks and, 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 and uh, depression that I, that I experienced for decades. You know, when I look back at it now, you know, and I've been following the Lord for 44 years now. So I have a little bit of perspective. When I look back now, I can see that I needed to go through this stuff to burn out a lot of crap that was in me. I'm talking about bad ideas, ideas that were very self-serving because how did I compensate for my depression? Generally, what people do is when they feel bad about themselves, they compensate by either their accomplishments, telling themselves, you see, I'm a really good person, or through positive affirmations. And I told myself a whole bunch of positive affirmations, but that everybody else is shit and, and, and I'm superior. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is laughable. I think it's an appropriate response. And it's a human, it's a human thing that we look down on other people. That's why we have these words called self-righteousness, pride, arrogance. This is so much endemic to the human condition. I live in a world, a fabricated world of distortion, alienated from myself, alienated from other people, 
and alienated from God. God can bring forth good from evil. In fact, we need the evil. I use myself as an example. I need, I need the suffering. I need the suffering to come to terms with it. If it wasn't for the suffering, I would never examine myself. I would continue in the same distorted way that I had been continuing. And the suffering kind of opened my eyes up to things. And so we need suffering. We need death. So I see the curse, the curse in the Garden of Eden, the curse of the fall that we would all die. I see this as, yes, it's a curse, but it's also a merciful curse. Why is it merciful? Because I know the way I am. And I take my relationships for granted. There are things about me I don't like. But, you know, the thing that, that helps me not to take things for granted is the realization I'm only going to have Anita here for a short period of time. And I want to appreciate her. I want to enjoy her. And that goes for so many aspects of our life that, that we need the hardship. Just, just think of a life without hardships. We would harden ourselves and take everybody for granted because there are no consequences for, for taking them for granted or mistreating them. In this world, we have confidence, uh, uh, consequences. And they have to be painful consequences. We need the pain. I cannot find in myself a justification for having an all-powerful deity that could create any world that they wanted to and create a world that has this in it. You're putting your finger on an essential difference between us, you know, between a Christian worldview and a, a naturalistic worldview. The Christian recognizes how little we know. And so a Christian wouldn't make such a judgment. But we trust. We trust, number one, I don't really have the knowledge, the vision, the intelligence to make that type of judgment. And you know what really gets me? is that there are atheists who actually say, well, look, you can't make this argument for design. Look at the eye. Look at the crazy way that this is formed. It couldn't be possibly the, the product of design of, a, of an intelligent being. And I got to go, wait a second. The eye is just so incredible that we see in present time and the reactions undo and then do and undo at an incredible rate. It's an incredible organ. But yet people, based upon their worldview, come up with very different conclusions. Job had a very naturalistic conclusion. He went through terrible suffering and he blamed God. And he said, God has deprived me of justice and I want to talk to him. Well, God finally did talk to Job. And he asked Job a series of questions, like about 60 questions. And basic questions, not like the justice of God, which to, 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 to decide what is just and unjust requires an incomplete understanding of all the factors. That's what Job was doing. But God asked him basic questions about how the world was created and all this stuff. And Job couldn't answer one of them. He got the point. And the point was, how can we bring a judgment against the creator of the universe 
when we know so little. We don't even know what light is, what matter is, what space is, what time is. We don't even know the basics of science. That, should, time, that should humble us. Any creature that was a creator um, should be answerable to the mistakes he's made. Um, for instance, the act of genocide, which God has not only okayed, but has himself taken part of, um, if the flood story is right. Here we have a deity who creates a world, things are going wrong, because he creates a world with beings in it, that he gives free will and gives them the opportunity to mess up, and they mess up, and then he destroys them all and says, I want to start again. Um, an omniscient God, a God who knows all, and knows all from the beginning of time to the end of time, would have known that that was going to happen, and might have thought, maybe not do that one. <laughs> um, so once again, the inerrancy uh, it just gets caught in my maw with, with things like that. Never mind the, the, the knowledge that we have now that there was a almost perfect identical story being told in Babylon where the Jews were captive for 150 years and might have looked up to these people who had conquered them. Like you were saying, when you were like, yeah, Jeremiah is awesome because the Jews were winning and then they started losing and the Jews felt the same way. Maybe they were you know, finally in a culture that was way more advanced than they were. And they started worshiping the ideas, if not the deities of that culture and may have said, you know, that's a great story. Let's, let's put that one in. And, <laughs> you know, if we're going to have a code, wait, wait, Hammurabi's got a code. Maybe we should make a code too. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the code actually maps pretty directly with some of the laws in Hammurabi's laws. Um, so I'm not going to believe that the Bible is anything but a bunch of stories. And there's, there's nothing's going to happen in this conversation where you're going to convince me or I'm going to convince you. I don't think that's what this conversation is about. Mm -hmm. And in general, I have no problem with people believing whatever they want to believe. But I do have a problem when that belief causes them to vote in certain ways and enact certain laws that impede the rights of other people uh, with a righteousness that that is only found in in uh zealotry i can understand that you get pissed off with us because of the way we vote i, I can understand that and it's kind of like we're in an adversarial camp but i would just invite you to look at our perspective that we might be getting pissed off at you guys i have no doubt you are <laughs> however the way that i vote is not denying you the access to bathrooms if you are born in a body that you don't feel is the right gender or uh, um, denying uh, gay people the right to marriage or um, not that you are a member of a church that does just denying people access to medical help because they believe that it goes against the word of God and once again I'm not putting that on you I'm just saying there well, are groups true. Who, true. who believe we, we that type of thing partake in an abortion or sex change uh, surgery that that's true yeah but we could say the same thing about you guys. You know, parents have been compelled to go along with sex changes of their kids that, 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 that you guys are voting in a way that no longer respects the, the right of the parents over their children. If you were to ask me whether or not I was for compelling a, a parent to forcibly give uh, hormone blockers or, or, or operations on their children against their will, I would say that is illegal. 
um, as you are the legal guardian and the children do not have a say until they're of legal age. However, if a child was to turn 18 and decide that they wanted to do all those things, I want there to be access to safe ways to do that. Okay, that's a different story. Once they leave the house and they're not under parental authority, that's okay. The reasons that you're pissed off at us, we have equal reasons to be pissed off. Yeah. So look, we, we all have our grievances. Let's learn to respect one another despite these, these things. I have a point of view about people who believe what I think is crazy batshit stuff they think that what I think is crazy batshit too. So I, I am not going to say to someone, look, I think you're batshit crazy. I'm going to say I disagree, but deep in my heart, I may think that. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and, and in the end, I'm sure that you're going to get off of this conversation. You're going to say, you know what, Chris, I think you're batshit crazy for not listening to this and hearing the sound of Jesus and now change your mind. Well, that's, that's the challenge that we all face. I, I can't watch the news anymore. Mm. It, it, I find it so disturbing. These issues, they touch it so deeply that we want to kill. And, and, and that's a challenge to respect mm. the dignity of each person, even though we see them as an enemy. I've got to deal with those feelings. When I see, especially in these Antifa, the violence, I want to grab a gun. I mean, that's my first reaction. I want to see justice done. When I watch a movie and I see justice done, I cry. That's how that's how deep it is with me. And so I've got to I've got to fight that back. If you would for one week change the source of your information flow from the people who agree with you to the people who disagree with you and listen to a news source that you think is just nuts. I think what you'll find is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle um, and that the dog whistle of Antifa has been uh, manipulated and that it's not quite as bad as you've been told it is. I would make the same challenge to you, but I don't know that I could, again, you know, to listen to the news Listen to the BBC World News. We used to have a news. We've got Walter Cronkite. He gets on and for a half hour, he tells you what's happened. He doesn't then go to seven hours of panels of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about or have an agenda filling your ear with what they think. Why is their stuff more value than my stuff? I've actually been boycotting CNN I've been boycotting. I watched Fox News once a week for a couple of hours just to find out what's going on there. But my main news source, source now is the BBC New World News, which is a half hour on the hour. And it's not opinion and it's not talking heads. It's just the news. I watched Fox News and I listened to Rush Limbaugh and I listened to the people who I completely disagree with because I want to know what they're thinking. It's a great challenge. It is. I just don't know if I'm up to that. <laughs> that's that's fair. I don't that's... even watch Fox. I can't stand. I can't stand to see the videos. Yeah. Of Antifa beating a snot out of somebody and knocking them unconscious. I can't stand it. We have to be very careful about what we believe when we're seeing stuff because things are being manipulated not just by Americans but by other people who want us to not trust each other.
that's true. So and maybe maybe you can even put the BBC into that category too. They're not giving you opinion. They're just saying this happened from a neutral point of view. If you're going to try to find a news source that's not at all corrupted in any way by any bias, I think that's inhumane. That's not possible. You're not going to find it. But you try to find as many sources as possible. If you can't stand the news, just watch the, the, the half hour once a day for a week. And I'd, I'd like to hear what you think, Daniel. You guys have been very good. You've given me the opportunity to talk. I think you've all been very fair, and I appreciate that. It's been a great experience. Daniel, thank you so much for your, your kind time and, uh, and your participation. And I look forward to speaking with you again, either on or off camera. This is Chris West from When Humans Attack. And that is all for tonight.